Pop Shield, a long-form discussion podcast about musical topics both past and present. I'm Gabe, and I'm joined as always by Dan. Yeah, hello. And Darren. Hello. We were all quite chuffed with how our episode on free jazz went, and it gave us the courage to tackle another challenging topic we've always wanted to get to, classical music. Now, our main focus today is going to be how to quote-unquote get into classical music, but we're going to approach that question by focusing on one specific piece, maybe the most famous piece in all of classical music, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, you know, the bum one. And we're going to narrow things even more by focusing on two legendary but very different interpretations of the Fifth Symphony. Carlos Kleiber's 1974 performance with the Vienna Philharmonic recorded for Deutsch gramophone. I'm not going to pronounce anything correct in this episode. <laughs> and John Elliott Gardner's 1994 performance with the Orchestra Revolutionnaire et Romantique, again for DG. Before we dive in, I want to know your guys' previous experiences with classical music in general. Dan, I suspect you've spent the least time in that whole world, but is it something you enjoy at all? Uh, not really. You know, it, it's it's sort of... People who, who listen to this podcast know that uh, this is sort of the antithesis of, of the kind of stuff I like, you know? Um, Why? Very, Why do you say that? Very stuffy, a lot of rules uh, that you got to follow, oh. all that. Uh, I do like uh, like 20th century um, composition, yeah. you know, Steve Reich, uh, John Cage, that kind of stuff. Does that count as classical music? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a lot of guitar. I mean, that's worth mentioning, right? <laughs> that's true. There you go. Yeah, that is that is true. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, had you've you've obviously like listened to the Fifth Symphony before? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, I've, I've, have you done it like front to back and that kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, I've listened to Beethoven, Mozart. You know, the the greatest hits. Like I'm I'm familiar with with all those. You know. <laughs> okay. And what about uh, you, Darren? Um. You know, for me, classical music sort of came, or at least, you know, when I really got into actually listening to classical music. I mean, I think classical music's kind of always been a part of my my life in some way, shape, or form. But um, it wasn't until, I, I want to say kind of like college, when I really was like actually checking into, you know, the works of Beethoven, getting into like different recordings, actually listening kind of the way you were just putting it front to back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Beethoven was really the first... Uh, the first for me. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know particularly what it was, but you know, I was taking a lot of like humanities courses. So you, you just kind of start learning about these different periods of time, 18th century, 19th century stuff. And you really, mm-hmm. you know, no college course really can talk about those centuries without at least touching on what's happening in the world of music. And, you know, lo and behold, Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, all that stuff is like, you know, going on at the same time with all these other movements that you're learning about, um, in these classes. So I, I just got very interested in that and, you know, boy, it was just kind of like, as soon as I jumped in, it was just a whole new like universe of music that I had never really even considered or explored what about you, Gabe. Yeah. I went through a, uh, period where I listened to like just classical music and this is just something I do. It's like a weird quirk of mine. I've probably mentioned it on previous episodes, but it's like, I like to have a project, you know, and when I just don't get something, I like try to force myself to understand what the big deal is. So, you know, this was back in the iPod classic days and I just deleted everything off of it except for classical music to like force myself to only listen to classical for like months and months and months and try to try to get it, you know. So, um that was where I you know kind of figured out, I think, how to how to get into classical music, which is our big topic here. But I've certainly spent a lot of time with 
classical music in general, um, especially this symphony. I do want to emphasize, though, uh, you know, before we get any hate mail or whatever, that we we are like coming at this as non-experts. Um, you would you would agree, right, Darren? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you probably won't be hearing much musical theory, and if you do, we're probably wrong. <laughs> so- <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I just want to I just want to emphasize that humility because I think uh, the 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 idea here is that you know we are approaching it as sort of outsiders, and I think that's who we're talking to people who are interested, like we once were, in kind of getting into classical music, um, who come from that you know, this, this other realm of like pop, rock, electronic, that kind of stuff. Um, so on that note, Darren, what is the best way to, you know, listen to classical music? Well, you know, I think it's important to obviously go with what you probably are at least somewhat familiar with. And I think that's part of the reason why we have chosen the fifth symphony. Um, whether you uh, are into classical or not, you know, surely you have heard bum, 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 you know, somewhere, you know, <laughs> right. even if somebody was going bum, 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 even things like that, you know what I mean? Um, you're at least somewhat familiar with it. And I, I think that the great thing about this symphony in particular is it starts off with something. It starts off with that. So you're like, okay, I got it. I at least understand this portion right. of the music. Um, but, you know, I, I think that... It, and this this goes for like pretty much any piece of music that's super long because most classical pieces are, you know, on average probably a little bit longer or as long as an entire you know CD of regular music, right? Forty minutes, fifty minutes. Um, some actually go you know hours long, but um, I, I think it requires you know a little bit of focused attention, right? Um, if you truly do want yeah. to try to get into it, I think that it, you know. Uh, it's a great headphone listening experience, I feel like, because especially if you get your hands on a great recording, you know, um, c- trying to listen to all the different instruments. Like, I, I think recording is, recordings are incredibly important. We'll we'll kind of get into that. Um, but as far as like, you know, what's the how what is the best way to like listen to it? You know, I would say just start with something super simple. But, you know. I like your sort of approach, Gabe, of like trying to focus yourself on it and not try to jump to too many different things or even allow yourself yeah. to, you know, get distracted with other types of music. Like really just drill into like one piece of music. Um, yes. And I want to emphasize that seriously, because I, I sort of was making this mistake early on when I was first trying. It's like you'll have this temptation, especially now we live in the streaming age. Uh, you don't have to load shit onto your iPod classic. Yeah. You'll have this temptation to like get into Beethoven, you know, as a whole. And, um, you're just like doing yourself a disservice, like pick one symphony and listen to a bunch of recordings of that symphony, because we'll get into this, but you hear like different colors, different emphasis, different interpretive choices. And you start to like get inside the thing a lot more, but you just got to resist, you know, like, like all week, right. We chose the fifth symphony and Carlos Kleiber, for example, the CD goes from the fifth symphony to the seventh symphony. And it's like seventh symphony starts I'm really tempted to like just keep on listening because it's really wonderful. Right. But you know, for the purposes of this project, putting myself in the headspace of somebody kind of trying to get into it, um, stay focused on that Fifth Symphony. Um, Dan, after this like two weeks of us forcing you to listen to one classical piece over and over again, um, what do you think is the best way to sit down and listen to classical music? Yeah, I mean, I think like what you said, like don't don't be tempted to just go to the next one because um, like like what I did 
to to avoid that uh was like i just made a playlist of like the the first you know the first half so that i wouldn't just you know if i if i was yeah just reading or you know sort of not not being like attentive you know you didn't want to catch you know uh what was the end so i think that was like a good thing to do although i guess a little counterintuitive since they package it uh, you know together or whatever but i I do think i do think uh really with with almost anything it's it's nice to focus you know if you can if you can take something big and break it down into smaller parts you know it's always easier to uh digest yeah yeah and i i think it's worth noting kind of going to what you were saying gabe about you know there's just there's just so much like not only do you know composers like beethoven mozart have like a large body of work you know between you know piano sonatas Mm -hmm. concertos all of you know symphonies all the different things (laughs) there's like a thousand recordings of each of these Mm -hmm. pieces of work like it's truly you know overwhelming if you like take one look at you know a discography or something not only like overwhelming but like in our like digital age and everything like I, I think it's sort of coming around now, but I, I remember when I was like younger and I would listen to some, you know, classical that, you know, like uh, getting into it a little bit or whatnot. It, it's like very annoying to like tag and like look up, even like I was trying yes. to, you know, like look up these specific recordings on like rate your music and stuff. And it's like, you really have to like kind of dig to, to, to find the ones you're like actually trying to fight you know you, you can't just search beethoven's right. fifth you're gonna get yeah. eight billion <laughs> yeah. results Gabe, you know? Gabe, I, I think i recall us having some extremely elitist and snobby arguments on the art of tagging classical music <laughs> yes. in itunes yeah it was a massive obsession and i would like change my mind about one little thing and go through my entire collection <laughs> and change them all oh so the I'm streaming I... the streaming age has really hurt that though i i, I do want to say like it's even it's now so like the, the these two that we picked uh you know you save them to your phone and um it like it, it still lists the artist as like beethoven and then in like the the orchestra like uh, the 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 conductor is like the last thing which doesn't fit when you just have it saved you know in in your your albums yeah. like i i literally had to like look at the the album cut co- you know make the album cover bigger uh in spotify and like read the the out you know which i guess is like yeah. sort of the way it was intended originally but uh it, it just sort of like doesn't meld well with the the digital age yeah, yeah, it's it's true, but I I am happy that like streaming has taken it out of my hands. Like I can't. That's true. Yeah, just gotta, yeah. <laughs> just gotta deal because I I spend so much time in the tagging shit. Um, one weird question that I kind of like couldn't come up with a good answer for, uh, but found kind of interesting is like, what is different and what is similar to listening to like pop rock or any of the genres that like our demographic is more familiar with? You know what I mean? Like, is are there any similarities? Or I mean, are they I think just completely different. Like coming from the person who who is you know least familiar with with uh, classical music, I, I I think that the difference is is that um, you know pop you, you you basically you know anyone listening to this was born in the world you know the modern world and so they're just the the tropes and the instruments and the things that uh you know can consist of pop music are are very familiar to us all and then you know classical is using different instruments it's it's using uh different sorts of arrangements and stuff where whereas like obviously you know what a violin sounds like uh, you know a flute and, and shit but it's just not like as innate of a uh, uh of, a, of an idea I, I think um and and also you know like like darren mentioned like a lot of classical pieces can be you know 45 minutes an hour you know longer whereas generally pop music and stuff is that three and a half you know format 
Yeah, I mean, as far as similarities, I mean, I think there's a lot, you know, I think a lot of the emotion that you and the excitement that you get out of like pop music, you know, is the same emotions that you can get from certain classical pieces. I mean, the Fifth Symphony, that's a banger. You know what I mean? Like you can you can turn that <laughs> right. thing up on your headphones and, you know, jam out the same way you would jam out to like, you know, a great rock song. I mean, yeah, the, obviously there's a lot of difference in what it is you're actually listening to, but I mean, ultimately to me the the enjoyment the excitement the thrill like it's the same you know those feelings are still the same even if the music is like wildly different yeah it, it, it's it's kind of weird because it does sort of work like pop music in the sense of like their melodies and you know their sort of movements and different sections that you could compare to like verse chorus bridge etc um but what's weird to me is that like classical music it, it often works it's like almost mostly melody, you know, and sometimes the melodic passages are so long. You know what I mean? Like they just never stop for like an entire minute of just it's it's changing and going and going. You know, it's not like like a, like a motif in a pop song is usually like three notes or yeah, four notes yeah. or something like that, you know, um, which we kind of do get here with like the bump, 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 bump. But, um, you know, some of these lines are just they just flow and flow and flow. And yet they will kind of get stuck in your head if you spend enough time with them like to where you're humming along the longest passage ever um <laughs> another thing that i thought was kind of odd is i think we live in a world where like the most classical music that that most people hear is in the form of like film soundtrack right mm -hmm. and it, it i think it has a tendency to like when you just hear this kind of instrumentation strings and stuff to like just kind of let it fade into the background because we are so used to it being background to a film scene or something. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of hard to focus because it feels like background music in a weird way. Yeah. I mean that, that honestly is like my biggest struggle with it is it does just sort of sound like, like a movie, you know, soundtrack yeah. to me. I, I mean, even I sort of thought like if this was just, like if the fifth symphony was just like the soundtrack of a, of a new movie that came out, like would, right. would we care as much, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and it, it's sort of hard to, to, to differentiate it. I, I, I think, um, you know, just, just being born and, and, you know, raised in, in like this sort of being background, the, uh, you know, type, type of thing. Yeah. What do you think about that theory, Darren? Uh, I mean, I, I agree. I do agree that like, this sort of instrumentation, the, you know, the orchestra, you know, lends itself to that sort of background music. But I do think that there are some pieces that kind of grab at your attention. I really think, and I, the fifth is really just a great example of something that I feel like it's pretty easy to like, for it to grab your attention and kind of keep your attention. You know, if, if you're thinking of things like, you know, maybe some of Mozart's earliest symphonies or even Bach or even further back where it's just so, you know, so much less like i guess uh drama and yeah um, energy yeah. you know that's the kind of example that i think a lot of people end up thinking about or they they, they sort of think all classical music is sort of like that where it, it doesn't get very exciting you know what i mean um i, I imagine yeah, the majority yeah. of people if they're not into classical music they've never heard like the fourth movement of the fifth symphony you know where it's like just bombastic and you know high octane energy yeah. right there they they just never get to that point yeah I, I just like find myself or i remember finding myself like you know i, I got really really into Mahler, as a lot of people do mm -hmm. and um you know like there are he, he'll have like slow movements that are like 30 minutes long and 
it just felt like a inherent thing in me as a modern person to just like drift away from it, you know, and like forget that I'm listening to something, um, which I don't think was an issue in the 19th century. But (laughs) on that note, let's move to the fifth symphony itself and talk about it like as a symphony, as much as that is possible before we get to these specific performances. Um, I want to ask you, Darren, about since you're kind of the resident expert here, um, I'm just kidding. We, claim, we I want to remind everybody before <laughs> yeah, the email, exactly. we're not experts. Um, <laughs> you know, what kind of background, because there's obviously so much books have been written, like tons and tons of books, probably about this symphony alone, maybe just the first movement, maybe just the first eight notes. Um, what kind of background is like necessary to know? And what kind of background information is just sort of fun to know? I'm thinking like historical, biographical stuff, you know? Yeah. So, you know, during my sort of obsession with classical music, you know, I, I have a couple of Beethoven books, um, you know, did a lot of reading on the internet, largely because, you know, Beethoven just as a trying to think of Beethoven as a person, I, I had such a hard time doing because he was just such a, <laughs> he just seemed like a mythical character you know what i mean like beethoven even even as i was just getting into classical music i knew the name beethoven you know but i didn't know anything really about his life so like i was so fascinated by it and i and i have to say the way these books are written obviously so much of his life is you know devoted to obviously the writing of some of his greatest pieces some of the greatest pieces of all of music history so you know for for me is or i'm thinking of somebody who's just trying to get into this like if you latch on to the fifth symphony or any of his symphonies like it is totally worth your while to like dig in and actually find out like what was going through his life what was the world like you know during the period Uh, that that symphony was being um written and it'll kind of change the way you know you're listening to 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 the stuff and we talk about this stuff all the time when we talk about albums kanye west whatever like the surrounding story about the piece of music just kind of enhances it. And that's totally here with classical music too. I like that. We can't even have a Beethoven episode without <laughs> mentioning Kanye. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I, I like mean, I'm sure proud, Kanye has compared himself to Beethoven, you know, yeah, definitely. definitely. Times, so, um, so yeah. All right. So what is like, I mean, what parts of that background story, you know, really should your first time listener kind of know about it? I mean, everybody knows about the deaf stuff right? right is he going deaf at this time yep so so beethoven's like in his mid-30s which is also kind of crazy to think about now that i'm reaching my mid-30s that, <laughs> yeah you know there was a human being who would write the fifth symphony and i could never even imagine right. but anyway right. yes his his deafness was already becoming more and more pronounced by this by this point in time so we're talking about there it's actually there's a long development period for this symphony it's 1804 to 1808 so four years and you know surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly beethoven was incredibly prolific during these four years whilst writing the fifth symphony he also wrote his one and only violin concerto he wrote an entire uh the fourth piano concerto and also wrote the sixth symphony during this like four-year period so it's just like stunning when you really kind of think about that even if you don't know what a concerto is but you know some of these incredible pieces of music were all written at the same time how is that even possible right um but i think the, yeah. the most like really like cool thing that kind of brought me to understand you know it was it was a good way of understanding or comparing it i guess to like today's world is the premiere of the symphony right so mm-hmm. in 1808 uh he premiered this in vienna 
um, at what turned out to be like a four and a half hour long concert of just Beethoven music and Beethoven um, conducting the orchestra. Uh, you see the debut of not only the Fifth Symphony, but also the Sixth Symphony. He does that fourth piano concerto I just mentioned. He plays it himself. Like it just, as a fan, of course, I'm like, this is like, must have been the greatest concert of all time. But, um, you know, just, just thinking about how crazy that would have been to sit there for four and a half hours listening but then to isn't new the, music. The, uh, the story is that it was like a big disaster, right? Right. Because like the, the, the orchestra like, had only had like one <laughs> rehearsal. Um, it was freezing it was, like, cold freezing in December. Cold. They didn't have any heat. <laughs> I mean, it sounds miserable when you read into it. But of course, you know you know 200 something years later you're like wow that must have been amazing yeah, yeah i yeah. probably awful i saw he also <laughs> did like a piano improv he's like the uh the grateful <laughs> yeah. dead of classical music <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as if like and that, that was like late in the concert too as if all of this wasn't enough he <laughs> everyone's just oh god <laughs> it's this dark star <laughs> <laughs> i was reading something about um you know some person like really wanted to leave because they were very uncomfortable but like they were in Beethoven's line of sight and he was such a crazy motherfucker that they didn't dare like stand up. Um, and all this stuff like builds into this mythos oh, of like yeah. this mad oh, genius, yeah. you know? So Dan, you know, does this kind of like historical background stuff elevate it for you? Do you think it's necessary for first time listeners to know? I, I mean, you know, like Beethoven's such a like historical figure that I, there's no way to go into it with like no knowledge, you know, like, you know, obviously, uh -huh. you know, the deaf thing, I, I did, you know, you you maybe don't know if he's deaf at this point or whatever, but I, you know, I the first couple listens, I, I like intentionally didn't read uh, any information about it, uh -huh. um, you know, because I I only knew you know what everybody knows, and uh, you know, then I read the Wikipedia, and you know, I read about like that that concert and stuff, and you know, I found it interesting and all, but I, I don't I don't think it like in enlightened the piece too much or you know opened a door for you know I, I just felt like oh now i know some trivia <laughs> yeah okay and you know and there's other stuff that i think is pretty interesting like um beethoven's politics and the politics of the time mm -hmm. you know this is there's a lot of revolution in the air uh in the early 19th century with the french revolution napoleonic wars um you know i guess beethoven's political beliefs are a little bit um I don't know, difficult to, to determine for sure, uh, of course, but, you know, he has this kind of, he's associated with this, like, revolutionary spirit and a lot of this, like, triumph and, you know, struggle and right. fight and everything um, comes into play. But at the same time, he's like, you know, his patrons are, like, powerful, you know, <laughs> right. royalty, basically, that pay him for these yeah. compositions. So it's it's interesting. It definitely complicates things, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you've also got interesting historical um you know aspects to beethoven is like again please no hate mail but to simplify things almost single-handedly like moving the world from like classical music into romantic music like into the romantic period um and there's also a lot of interesting stuff about the legacy of of beethoven and this symphony in particular you know i i think the symphony is obviously like a a highlight it is one of these things that's identified as like this mixture between you know it's like sort of structured like a classical piece and yet it's got like this like wildness that is associated with the romantic era um music would never be the same after the symphony um you've got other issues that i wanted to mention like 
the rise of nationalism in the 19th century and how like you know because his his work is so like triumphant and you know it's like gets associated with um the german spirit you know and like eventually with you know even like nazism and yet at the same time um this symphony in particular becomes like very central to the allied forces in world war ii it becomes known as like the victory symphony um and associated with like fighting off nazism one thing i wanted to mention just for dan because i know you're a big space fan um as i'm sure you know it ends up on the voyager golden record so yeah he actually has two pieces on that really so maybe yeah. aliens have even heard Beethoven. Um, <laughs> maybe. So obviously just like a huge, huge, um, just so much like peripheral stuff. But let's start with you, Dan. If you were just to describe this symphony to somebody who had never heard it, how would you describe the symphony itself? I mean, that that's like the hardest thing possible. Uh, I mean, one, <laughs> you know, everybody knows that bump, bump, bump thing, you know, and, and that is... Right. I, I just feel like that's so even if you didn't know that it's from it, it's just like so ingrained in like uh I don't know, culture, I guess. Um Right. It, it, it's it's hard to like explain. But um you know, outside of that, um I I think like I said before, you know, like we just just coming into it, you know, first first listen listen before you, you dive deep or anything. I, I think like you're gonna get the feeling of like a movie soundtrack you know you're gonna you're gonna feel these strings this you know sort of like it it feels like there there uh either is or should be like some sort of narrative um attached to it (laughs) you know like you you feel like you feel like there's a story uh going on even if um you don't know what that story is or 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 what you know It, it 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 really gives that like sense i think to the to the um uninitiated yeah and i think that you know, it feels kind of like as a whole to sort of describe the structure of the thing. You know, it starts off like very dark and stormy um, with yeah. this opening movement. And it kind of like, it's not like a smooth path because it gets rather like stately and, you know, grand in the second movement, a little bit darker in the third movement, but then like absolutely triumphant in the last movement. And so it has kind of this like upward trajectory, you know what I'm saying, Darren? Yeah, and I think that it's important to mention to fans or people who are just trying to get into classical music that this form, this four uh, movement form is kind of a standard, you know what I mean? Even though Beethoven Uh is already sort of breaking away from what's called the classical period or whatever, you know, he is still using four movements. Later on, we see five, six, we see multiple, you know, changes, um, even his sixth symphony kind of deviates from Uh that. But, um, you know, and the way I always like to think about it is like, usually your first movement is, you know, fast in some, some way it usually makes a statement, you know, it's kind of like what's supposed to grab your attention. Right. And then usually settle into like a bit of a slower second movement, whatever that is. Somehow it's a little bit slower than the first. The third is kind of just like kind of just building you up to some sort of climactic fourth movement, which sometimes like, as in the case of the fifth symphony doesn't actually, you know, the, the third movement flows right into the fourth movement. Um, actually uh, building right up to it. Um, and that's kind of the function of those four movements. Of course, that that varies from symphony to symphony. But in my mind, that was always helpful to just kind of know where I'm at or what to expect when I see like a four movement symphony. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's true. And yet I think that there's something sort of innovative about this symphony from what I know in that it was typical sort of before this to have sort of like your it's like your main 
you know, your smells like teen spirit comes first. Yeah, all right. Yeah, and yeah. then <laughs> the rest of the um, symphony is like sort of, you know, explorations and developments of the themes introduced there. So it's sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't usually like crescendo, like in, you know, a lot of Mozart, you just get this sense of like, starts off with like the grand statement. And then we kind of like go off on different excursions throughout that statement. Whereas this, you know, as, as iconic as the opening movement is, it feels like it's all about the final movement, like right. where as soon as it starts, we're heading there. And that feels like pretty new and also pretty, um, it, it makes it, I think, more accessible to modern listeners because we're used to, you know, sort of, I don't know, post-rock or concept albums that, that sort of build in that way. You know what I'm saying, Darren? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's spot on. Um, a lot of other symphonies, as you have mentioned, like don't have the notoriety of like a fourth movement that's as good as the first movement. You know what I mean? And here, as you mentioned, like it, it rivals the first movement. Maybe it even like tops it if you really listen to the whole thing. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of astounding, right. To, to think that, you know, it it also, I guess compared to like what comes later or even comes before, like there's just so much like energy and excitement, like, and it, it seems to move rather quickly, you know what I mean? Like there, it, there's really not a lot of dull moments where things get like super duper quiet or super duper slow, you know what I mean? Like the, it kind of always is moving at a fairly brisk pace, and of course that lends itself to you know the different com- conductors and how they choose to conduct the music. But you know, this symphony in particular, I think, just has it's just kind of like electrifying throughout. I, what- what you just said, like, it, it doesn't do that thing where it gets, like, incredibly quiet. That's always been uh, uh, an issue I've had with, like, classical music. It, sure. And, yeah. you know, like, if you're not listening on headphones, you know, some some pieces, and maybe it's the conductor or whatever, uh, you know, you just, you have to, like, fucking crank your 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 stereo up, you know, to the, to the max yeah. to hear it. And then... Bam! It goes back. You know, it's like when you watch <laughs> right. a movie and there's an explosion. You know, it yeah. blows your head off. It, it, it that that's always been like such an annoying, like the, the, such a such a like hindrance to getting into classical music for me. So it, it was, or it is very refreshing that uh, this one doesn't do that. Yeah, it's it, it does strike you as like incredibly tight, like just so labored over to where like not a note is yeah, wasted, like trimming um, all the fat off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just absolutely just goes and goes and i wonder dan um you know listening to that first movement i'm always i'm just like amazed how it just takes me and then like just i'm just along for the ride because you know the way it like sort of you know rises up and then like it feels like you're like you know flying off a cliff and then just like falling you know as like the is like running underneath these like sustained chords you know it's like did you find putting this on that you were just sort of like under its spell, at least in that first movement? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, the whole thing, like, you know, does grab your attention and, like, command your attention, you know, uh, once you once you allow it to, you know, it, it, because it doesn't do those sort of uh, really backgroundy tricks, like like I said, like the, the getting really, really quiet and, and you know, just sort of uh, lending itself to the background. It does sort of, um, you know, stay... Um, stay like very active and, and just um, keep, keep your attention, which I, which I think makes this like such a great, um, you know, b- beginners one. And, and honestly, it's, I was thinking about it. Like while, while I was listening stuff, like 
that is that why this is the most famous one you know because i think i think it does sort of like have a a little bridge between classical music and and modern you know listening uh because of things like that yeah and well and you know dan you're a drummer there's like a lot of like drums in this you know yeah i do they call it in the orchestra but (laughs) i do i do dig the temp the timpani's a a rad uh instrument yeah i I wonder dan though if like because i I just sort of would expect somebody to put this on and be like damn first movement fucking slaps like darren was saying um because it it just objectively does like it it never lets you go it just Mm -hmm. like keeps on like rushing and rushing and rushing and even like those pauses you know it feels like the pause is like when you're like just cresting over a hill on a roller coaster or something like you know you're about to like fall right back down into it yeah um but i wonder dan if like after that how did the middle two movements go because i would just expect somebody this first time listener to be thrilled by the first movement and then find especially like the second movement you know that kind of it almost sounds like a standard like very stately you know like um aristocratic like house party music you know what i'm saying yeah i mean yeah yeah that, i i can see that i mean it, the, the the middle section i it, it does get like a little bit into that like stuffy uh you know territory uh of classical music Maybe it's because I mean I, I this isn't actually you know my first time listening to this or anything, uh, um, so maybe I, I, I'm mildly used to it or whatever. But but I think if if it loses your attention at a point, you know that that is sort of where it'll happen. Um, it, it, and then like I said, I mean you know this is this sort of feels like a bridge between like the the, the classical and you know modern or whatever. And and I think that 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 little part is um, is sort of the 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 other side of the you know the classical side of the bridge because yeah it, i mean it, it's 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 mildly stuffy there i'll say <laughs> yeah well, well how would you respond to that darren you know like the, all the like bum 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 mm-hmm. you know it just sounds like it's like not beethoven's fault but it just feels so like dated i think until you get past that initial thing you know it's different from the first movie which i think will grab anybody you know what i'm saying Right, right. And I, you know, I kind of just had to understand as I was listening to these that like, it's, this is one piece of music really, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's not meant to be looked at as like individual songs on an album, right? Sometimes we talk about albums that have really great bangers, but maybe as a full cohesive record, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't work, right? We talk about that. You know, with, with classical music, with a symphony, like you know, you have to try, I feel like you have to try not to do that too much, right? Like you have to, I always have the expectations that like movements two and three are probably not going to be as electrifying (laughs) as one and four, you know what I mean? Like, but there's something there, there's a story to be told, just like, story to be told, just like you were mentioning, uh, Dan, like, you know, maybe a movie playing, whatever, like, Mm mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a mo- there's a reason for these two movements. Yeah, I mean, it can't really be to lead you somewhere, right? Yeah, it can't it can't be in your face. Yeah, the whole right. time, you know, like yeah, right. you, you sort of expect. I mean, in any you know piece of music, especially like uh, you know a one, like you said, you know, this isn't an album. It, it's it's one piece of music. You know, when you're doing something for how long is it, like forty something minutes? Uh, you know, when you're doing something for that that length of time, yeah, you can't if you're just straight pedal to the metal the whole time. Yeah, like that's exactly. exhausting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that another thing that's important to mention here is 
the you know the motif um I, I, Ooh, i'll get to this in a second a but we'll call it <laughs> we'll call it the fate motif and, and we'll dive into that controversy in a second but you know the bum 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 um the really cool thing about this symphony i think is that and for some reason it's kind of controversial but it appears you know throughout the symphony like in each moment in each movement there are points where you get that like same rhythm um some people like argue that that's just coincidental or something but i think it's like very clear you know what i'm saying there that like the the fate motif appears in every movement in different forms kind of like tying this whole thing together as one piece yeah most certainly i you know i am not even going to try to consider what beethoven was doing with this piece of music for four years but you know i from all that you read, and yeah, there's a lot of lore out there about the bum 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 and how he described it or what you know Beethoven thought of it. I I do believe that like that was the heart of this piece of music from the beginning, and he found a way to you know keep it all keep that as a, a part of the entire piece of music. And I yeah, I don't I I think that you're just lying to yourself if you if you think that was some sort of coincidence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I feel like it. I feel like it would be odd for it to be quit. You know, it like why why would it why would it be coincidence? You know, it like and something so labored over. You know, you would just accidentally stumble upon the same rhythm. You know, every movement at at, at some point. Yeah, you know? and yeah. that kind of seems ridiculous. Yeah, I think it's like basically indisputable. You know, like in the third movement, it's like the whole like da 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 You know, it's the same exact thing, and it's like you know the the cool thing about like people like Beethoven, why it's still fun to listen to these like super super classic figures, um, is that you can just kind of trust that they're geniuses and that oh, yeah. everything they did was deliberate. You know, like I really like that comfort. Um, you know, as a listener, you know, I I, I like. Uh, study Shakespeare um, in in school right now, and it's like he has so many like weird fluky things. It just seems like a mistake. Like he forgot what this character's name was, so now it's a different character or something like that. But you'd be like, you know what? I trust Shakespeare. I bet there was some reason for this. And maybe maybe you overread sometimes, but it's like it's just comforting to be like now I get you know if I just believe that it was on purpose, now I get to like have fun figuring out why. Um, right. <laughs> one 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 thing I want to ask is, you know the 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 issue of instrumentation. Now, when we did our free jazz episode, we talked about like how important it is to kind of appreciate, okay, the band leader has assembled a very specific musical palette. You know, why did they do that? Ornette Coleman didn't want a piano in there, but, um, um, Coltrane did. I don't know why I couldn't think of his name. Um, (laughs) you know, Coltrane wanted a bunch of saxophones, whereas like, Coleman wanted a couple, you know, these different strange things. Uh, what is what is a what does Dolphy play? Like a bassoon or something? Um, whatever. But the point is, the musical palette is obviously really important to classical music because the composer has specifically decided on specific instruments. And there are a couple weird ones here. Um, for example, this is like the first symphony that included trombones, that included um piccolos um ever i think and um but how darren when you know what like for new listeners i think all classical music is going to sound the same so how do you come around to appreciating the specific like palette choices in the instrumentation yeah i mean i i I think there's no way around 
you know, admitting that that's just a bit of a deeper dive. You know what I mean? I, I don't think that, mm-hmm. I don't think knowing that a, you know, a piccolo is in this symphony is going to make or break, um, somebody getting into classical music. You know what I mean? Um, but I do think that part of the effort of picking a single piece and listening to it over and over again is also learning what is really going on here. You know, what is, what is the orchestra comprised of, you know, as you listen to it over and over again, you start to hear what the cellos are doing. You start to pick up on the the thing that the woodwinds are doing. You know what I mean? Because obviously and this is always what kind of blows my mind when I start thinking about, cause you know, being a former musician, right. Most of like pop music, indie music that I listen to, inspire me in a way that it's like yeah i can i want to write music beethoven doesn't inspire me to write music it's because it's just too you know yeah. it'd be too challenging can you imagine like having like you know trying to write music for multiple for all of these instruments and and having all these yeah. things going on and when you think about it that way and then you listen to the piece and you're like holy shit there's like so many different things happening between the strings and the percussion and the brass and the, yeah. the woodwinds that repeated listenings really then kind of help you understand what these textures are doing. And then you start thinking about, well, why did he choose to have a piccolo? Why did he choose to include the trombone? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it it just expands and I don't know, deepens the experience for me. Yeah. I think that's what, you know, you want to do because you know, there are parts like where, you know, everything drops out and it's just like the cellos like, you know, why are the cellos doing that? You know, it's like, maybe it's a deeper dive area, but it's like, ask yourself why we, you mentioned that there's like a shit ton of timpani on this symphony. You know, that's not true of every symphony ever written, right. obviously. So like, why so much timpani? I mean, Dan, did you find yourself like interested in some of these palette musical palette choices? Or do you feel like it's just, it just feels so much like quote unquote classical music that you didn't really notice you know i mean i had a week and a half you know with the you know so which which is a short amount mm. of time to like you know learn such such a a, a, a important piece of music and all uh, so you know at first like i i really did just listen to it and it did just sort of sound like quote-unquote classical music but i did make a point to like read the wikipedia and see what instruments were in it because um you know i mean honestly i didn't i didn't know what what everything was you know i mean obviously you know, a violin and, and whatnot, but I, I don't know if I could tell you a piccolo from a, from a regular <laughs> flute, you know, just off the top of my head or, or whatnot, you know? So I did, I did make a point to like, to read that. I, I think still just after a week and a half, I, I, I don't have it like memorized. I couldn't, uh, right. I, you know, I couldn't tell you, Oh yeah, I love the the piccolos and, and the, you know, third sec, you know, whatever kind of thing. But, I, but if it was like something that I was going to, to, continue to like dive deeper in and and wanted to learn more about i think that yeah it would it would definitely like become uh, beneficial because like you said with like jazz you know uh, jazz is something that i especially free jazz something i'm very into and so yeah when i listen to that now i can say you know i know what's what and and and, and everything and that that comes from like uh experience and, and just constantly you know learning as, as as listening to it you know looking at the you know wikipedia or you know cd booklet or or whatever yeah i mean it's not like you have to like intellectualize it so much because there's not going to be a a good answer usually but it's just like i think if if you're a first-time listener it's worth kind of like observing yeah when things are you know why they are sort of colored the way they are so it's like here you know that that contrabassoon and the trombones only play in the fourth movement so it's like you could sort of ask yourself like man he wanted that that thing to 
boom. You know, you wanted some like <laughs> some extra boom on that last, you know, and it just sort of like <laughs> adds to the experience getting inside of his head a little bit. What I want to ask he, now is you mentioned this a little bit, Dan, like imagining a movie in your head or something, but do you feel kind of like compelled to imagine a narrative while you're listening to this? Like imagine themes, you know, there's so much like mythology around this. Um, basically not to get like too into the weeds, but there was like some guy that was like a student or associate of Beethoven who said that Beethoven told him that the bump up a bum is supposed to be fate knocking at the door. And it turns out that this guy was like kind of full of shit about everything he said, you know, he just was like, <laughs> Often, like bragging like about his very thing, cl- yeah, yeah. He, he like wanted to like pretend like he had a much closer relationship with Beethoven than anybody else, and he was probably lying. Um, so that's like often dismissed. You know, there's you know, and yet there's like almost always if you listen to like analyses of this uh, or read analyses of this symphony, it's like you know, talks about like a heroic struggle or something like, because as you listen, you often hear you know, there's like an immense like stormy darkness in the opening movement, and then it gets quite like joyous and triumphant as it moves along. And yet there'll be those moments, you know, where like that kind of like minor sort of key comes back in um, and like, just kind of reminds you of the first movement or whatever. Um, Of course we move from like a C minor to a C major in the last movement, which makes it very like triumphant. Um, So what do you think about all that, Darren? Do you think it's useful to imagine kind of a narrative, like some warrior fighting against fate or something? Or are you sort of like missing the point there? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say no, that I've never really bought into any of that. And and I'll tell you why. I've kind of felt like classical music has been such a like a personal experience for me. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that like what you're listening to is an interpretation, right? Um, when we listen to, you know, a pop record, you know, the Beatles white album, there is only one Beatles white album. There's only, you know, there's multiple interpretations, Uh, I suppose, but like, there's only one recording, right? Yeah. There's only one, there's only one interpretation of the Beatles music, right? That's the, it's their interpretation. That's all there is. When it comes to classical music, there are so many interpretations and we will obviously get into it with these two specific recordings that... I mean, truly, you can you could arguably say that the same piece of music, but recorded and performed by two different orchestras, can have a totally different, like you know, narrative, totally different emotion, like all of the things that you're you're looking for could totally differ, and then you gravitate towards whichever one speaks to you more. So that's that's where like the personal experience comes from. I think it's really cool. Like I, I'm not like you know the whole fate knocking at the door, I could see it. I could understand why that might work um, as an interpretation. But like, to me, that's not why I listen to the fifth symphony. I'm not thinking about a warrior fighting some dramatic war or anything like that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not like that at all for me. Like for me, it's, it's just a different, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. What do you think, Dan? Did you find yourself like imagining a specific story in your head? No, I mean, I just sort of felt like there sh- should be a story. You know, I didn't really, I, I like I said I purposely didn't like read much about it like at least the first couple of times I listened to it you know once I read the fate knocking at a door you're like oh yeah you know bah, 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 bah. sounds like somebody like you know doing the the pounding of a fist on the door and all but but again uh, I I thought that because somebody told me that you know uh, it, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like I didn't come to that on, on my own I I I think the the reason like you 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 
come up with a with a theme or story or, or or feel like there should be one is because in like pop music you sort of you know especially with lyrics you you sort of like even if you don't fully understand the lyrics or you know the meaning behind them you're still like they're sort of giving you you know whatever the narrative is i mean even something right. like i yeah, i am the true. walrus that's purpose uh, per, uh purposely uh nonsensical it's still like you, you know, you, you you think what the walrus looks like. You, you know, what's the egg man? You know, like it's still, it's <laughs> right, sort of, it's right. giving you these images. Whereas the, like right. something like this without, and, and not just classical music as sort of any uh, instrumental music, it's sort of like giving that part over to you. Um, so I think like, yeah. you know, if you want it to be a heroic struggle in your mind, you know, you know, if, if it's fate knocking at the door for you, then cool. If it's, you know, <laughs> something else, then cool, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that it's like, it can be sort of detrimental to like attach a very specific image to these different sounds and movements. Um, it just sort of like cheapens it in a way. Um, and it's weird because we feel this compulsion to do it with classical music because we're trying to get it, you know, quote unquote. Um, but when you listen to like Godspeed, you black emperor or something like explosions in the sky, you're not thinking like, Oh, this buildup sounds like, you know, a, a minor walking up a but hill, I, you know, like you know. But I think that's a kind of a bad example because I think everybody uh, does ab- ascribe like something, especially to Godspeed. You know, they they have this sort of like reputation as being like um, uh, apocalyptic and like uh, you know anarchist and stuff. But like, there's there's no lyrics that that give you that. But like, sort of everybody kind of arrives at that uh, similar. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I guess like there is sort of an aesthetic, and there's an aesthetic around Beethoven, obviously. So it's like hard not to think about his personality and his like sure you know he's very very temperamental very mad genius kind of style um and sort of implant that on like the storminess of the music um but you know i just think of like the the specific images like oh that chord progression is yeah a bird a bird singing or what you know like i think that really sort of sort of like robs the thing of its power and it's best to just like sort of let it wash over you and try to appreciate it as pure music or something although there are things that are really indisputable indisputable in the sense of like there are parts of godspeed that sound very apocalyptic like they just you know it would be impossible to listen to some of their pieces and say this is about being happy you know mm-hmm. like it's there are just moments where that's just not arguable yeah. um and there are moments here where it's like the last movement you cannot argue that the last movement is like not triumphant you yeah. know like at the very least we have to agree on that um now I want to sort of move on, um, and we'll obviously continue talking about the symphony itself, but move on to these specific performances. Um, we're talking about, again, Carlos Kleiber from 1974 and John Elliott Gardner from 1995 or four. Maybe I mixed up. Oh, no, four. Okay, so. <laughs> not experts, Lisa. These, yeah, not experts. <laughs> the, so these are the two performances we chose to really focus on for this um, episode. Darren, can you speak to like why it's important to hear? You sort of started to, but like why is it important to seek out different interpretations of the same piece? Well, I mean, there's there's tons to talk about regarding that. Um, I guess number one, you know, there there are no recordings of Beethoven conducting his symphonies, right? There's not a recording right, right. of it. So all that we are left with is the sheet music. And, you know, sheet music, without getting too much into musical theory, it does give quite a bit of direction, um, you know, tempo right. and repeats and do the, you know, even there's sometimes like notes maybe even uh, written on the sheet music. 
But ultimately, it is still left up to the imagination and the interpretation of the conductor. And that conductor, very similar to the composer, has a personality, has its, you know, has his own life. Like it, there, there's already something to be said about that, right? How is he yeah. going to interpret it? How is, how is he reading the narrative, right? Does he read it like a warrior struggle or whatever? Like just what we were just discussing between our, ourselves, like that same experience happens to the conductor and then he is leading the orchestra towards that vision, right? And so between right. just these two, for instance, you know, I, I think they're extremely different. Um, some conductors, as with John Elliott Gardner, like to do what's called what a period piece right um or more historical specific like trying to make sure that the instruments are tuned the way they would have been back in 1808 um you know trying to play at the pace as close to what exactly is written on the sheet music as possible whereas others will completely change things maybe even remove (laughs) sections of the original score of the original sheet music because of whatever reason that they're trying to interpret it. And we, and we can talk about that. I don't know if you want to get into that regarding the fifth symphony and that whole repeat in the scherzo, the third movement. Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back around to that when we get to um, Gardner, but I want to start with Clyber for a second. And you're right to mention that there is, you know, that's sort of the fun thing about classical is that now we have like extra background. If you're a background kind of guy, like, like (laughs) I am, um, there's more background. Um, <laughs> I don't want to like dive too deep into it, but like Carlos Kleiber, he's, he's pretty much like an absolute legend um, conductor. And what makes him so interesting, I think, is there's like a lot of mystery surrounding him. Um, he has like a very, very small uh, re- recorded output. Um, seems to have been like an, just an absolute perfectionist. Um, he has like a pretty famous Tristan and Isolde, um, which I think was like his last recording. And he basically was like working on it with his orchestra and just eventually decided he was unhappy and stormed out. But there were enough recordings of like rehearsals and stuff that, uh, the record label just released it, you know, um, (laughs) which he was very pissed about, but he, you know, just compared to most conductors, he like, um, recorded very, very little. He, I think, uh, I read, he gave one interview in his entire life, one known interview. Um, he was known as being like very temperamental, very, very crazy kind of Beethoven-esque in a way. Um, there's also a lot of interesting stuff to say about the historical moment, right. Of 1974 when this was recorded. Um, it's, you know, obviously very different from the early 1800s. And you think about with this whole legacy of like, um, you know, the fifth symphony in particular, you know, moving through the rise of nationalism in Germany, uh, co-opted by, you know, Nazis and whatnot, and then re-co-opted by the allies fighting the Nazis as a sign of victory and, you know, revolution and struggle against tyranny. Um, and then you get this basically, uh, Austrian or German, um, I think he's German born Austrian, um, conductor interpreting this piece in 1975 with the weight of all that history. Um, it, you know, you know what I'm saying, Dan, how it's just like a very different historical moment to think about what does Beethoven mean in 1974? Does any of that stuff interest you when thinking about a specific performance of a, of a piece? I mean, yeah, I the, normally, you know, I, I, I'm a big background guy, you know, anything that yeah. I, that I get into, I, I usually get real into it, you know, I'll read a book or something. Um, 
this I, you know, I, I wasn't into enough and I purposely was sort of trying to, you know, I, I'm the one in this episode that's, that's the, the novice and also I was sort of, you know, purposely not becoming an expert on, on things and all. Um, so I didn't really get into all that, um, very much at all, but you know, it, it's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. Because yeah. Like, of course. Yeah. Cause you think about something like, I don't know, Wagner or whatever, right. Which is like very, very associated with Nazism in the early 20th century nationalism, um, think about like, what was the first Wagner performance after World War II? You know, the, yeah, the horrors of true. World War II, like the weight that it adds to that and the way that the music changes, you know, where it was once like a celebration of the German spirit and now has all this like shame and horror associated with it, uh, really changes the way a piece is interpreted, but also just the way a, per- a piece sounds to us. Um, how much of this stuff do you think about? when listening, Darren, because I think about first time listeners are probably going to be tempted to be like, I just want to pick a performance. that's going to get me closest to understanding Beethoven, but it's kind of like a fool's errand and you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't think about the historical context of the performance itself. Right. Yeah. I I do think though, I I do think it can potentially scare people off to think that like, Oh my God, now I've got to like understand the background of, the conductor and and Mm -hmm. the year that this recording was done you know and even for me i I think a lot of my early listenings was just just trying different things it it was not you know i i kind of like relied on sources that were telling me hey these are important recordings or this is a really Uh, good recording you should listen to this like that was kind of what guided me um and then if i if i connected or i liked the performance then i would kind of dig in a bit deeper and and become a bigger fan of this conductor and then from there you know you check out other great recordings from that particular conductor but i don't think that it is you know necessary to to have to understand all of that while you're still just trying to get into it I, I, you agree with that gabe right i do but i also think that like you know i think of it like movies you know like film adaptations sure. um you know so like just last year little women came out by Greta gerwig and it's like a very 2019 take on little women you know um i guess i don't want to spoil it but it's got like the <laughs> the concerns of of women and of today whereas there was like a very famous like mid 90s version of little women which was very very 90s you know um there's a little women like from like a silent film from the 20s or something that is really reflects the 20s you know and i just think it's like yeah it it just makes it richer if you think about the context of beethoven and the context of the performer now dan i feel like this is sort of a tough question and maybe it's impossible not to bounce back and forth between the two pieces you know performances we're going to talk about but like how would you say that Kleiber interprets the fifth symphony like what, what were just your initial thoughts listening to Kleiber specifically yeah i mean that is really difficult for me to answer after just you know like a week and a half of of, of listening to these two because mm-hmm. also like i, I realize i i don't a hundred percent uh know what a conductor does you know obviously i know i know he's the guy who's like waving the stick and i i you know and i know that's, that's all he does he just waves he his just, arm around he just like, waves and he's like i hope everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing yeah. <laughs> but i mean you know i know like that like that's controlling like the tempo and, and you know he's like saying louder you know quieter but like i i don't really get like if, if the music's written down like i i don't get why this guy is is so important over like oh you know this one's got the best celloist in the world you know like that that feels like <laughs> like i feel like that part just just for my my you know uh, lack of knowledge or whatever like that part seems more important to me like oh you gotta hear you know the uh, i forget which orchestra you know is this one but like 
it's it's odd to me that like it's not like oh you got to hear the london symphony orchestra you know do it or something like i i don't really i don't think i 100 percent know why it's the conductor that is that is the yeah, reason how would you explain that darren like why is like the conductor the auteur of the uh you know classical world really right so you know i, I think it's because everyone has to adhere to their interpretation right so conductors will jump to different orchestras they're not always like tied for their entire career to the same orchestra so you know it's it's in there there's like a bit of importance when like you know uh salty goes from like the chicago symphony orchestra to the london symphony orchestra like they like there's an honor obviously the london symphony orchestra has seen plenty of different conductors but when when salty steps in there's a certain you know, there's there's a change because he maybe he favors certain parts of the orchestra to be louder or to be featured more. You know, thinking about like the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, a lot of people will say they're really big in on brass. Well, why is that? Every orchestra has like a brass section. Maybe it's because they are just louder, or maybe they they add additional brass um, players to their performances because they just you know it's just something that they want to be able to bring out so that's kind of something that the conductor can do they sh- they show up i imagine they talk to the all of the performers they talk them through the piece they tell them yes this this section needs to be louder this section needs to be faster whatever even if it's deviating from what is literally written down on the uh the sheet music it's the conductor that is determining he's driving the ship you know what i mean and you've got to keep yeah, up, I, right? He's gonna if you don't if you don't you get thrown out, right? I mean th- that's that's kind well, of. I, I think it's it like it's useful to think of it like the director of a film versus the writers sure. and the actors. You know who's the most important? Like yeah, the actor yeah, 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 is yeah, yeah. the symphony, the writer is the composer, and the director is the conductor. And yeah, you know I think like conductors when they're gonna perform a piece, they spend like months, you know sometimes years, just like studying the score, right? And they're looking for like how they see it right and that can mean like drawing out certain emotions from certain passages the you know power or emphasis or speed of different passages um you know it's just like if i don't know if somebody um trying to think of an example like david bowie or something right i don't think he like played many instruments on his records right he's like directing um musicians to play the music as he hears it and it's like the bass player starts playing a baseline that he's that Bowie, I guess, has written, and you know, yeah, Bowie might see, say that. No, hit hit that second note softer. You know, on that third note, really, you know, hit it hard. You know, maybe like slide up to that fourth note. You know, like there's so much because he's just got a sound in his head. I think the conductor reads the score and gets the sound in their head, and they like force the orchestra to recreate it as they hear it, which can be very different. I guess what I don't, what I, what I don't fully understand or whatever is, is like you said with like Bowie, like I, I understand that like Bowie wrote the song, you know, it's his song. He's hearing it in his head, even though, you know, maybe he, he can't, or, you know, he doesn't have like the, the proficiency to like record it all himself. You know, he's the one who wrote it. It's in his head. Uh, you know, this is somebody reading somebody else's work and then interpreting it so that someone else can inter- it's, it's like you're you're adding a a, a middleman in here that that that's the part that is uh, odd to me I think 
Right, but kind of going back to my original point, like there's not an original recording of. No, I get that, but the 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 score, you know, it's written down, and I get I get you don't have a hundred percent of the information, so I I I understand that the conductor like adds sort of that that you know say ten say ten percent's missing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you you're filling in the gaps, and that I that I get, but um, I don't know. It just it it just seems really odd to me that that that's what's important, not the, the 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 orchestra. Yeah, I mean, I think just because the orchestra is doing exactly what the conductor tells them to do. And, you know, on that note, Darren, how would you describe how Kleiber interprets the fifth? So, you know, I I think that the easiest way to try to describe it in the simplest terms is that this is one of the most dramatic, um, one of the most romantic, one of the most energized reads, I, I think, of the fifth symphony. Um, I think, you know, it's important to me as a listener, the, the sound quality of the recording is also really, really important. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, and it's hard because like, I guess if you were there live or if you saw it performed live, it wouldn't matter. You would then truly just be listening to the entire orchestra in that conductor's, um, interpretation. But when you hear it in like the form of a recording headphones on, you know, there's a clear difference in like how well mic'd the mm-hmm. cellos are or the, the violins and right, stuff. Right. And, you know, on this particular recording, like you can, you can hear the bows like going across the cello, uh, the That's cello true. strings. You know what I mean? You can hear the sounds of like seats moving and, and breathing and, and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's like a close mic'd type of recording. Um, and that's important. I mean, that's, that's to me, that's part of the interpretation. That's what we get, right? Like um, yeah. when we, when comparing these two different recordings, like they sound like they're recorded differently, you know, in terms of like where the mic is placed and what you're truly hearing. Um, so that kind of adds into the drama for me, like the, the almost like rawness of the, uh, the interpretation, like, being able to hear the instruments so loud, like the the notes are drawn out. Like it's not just like bum 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 bum. It's like bum 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 right. bum. Like there's a little extra emphasis, even if it's just like a millisecond more. It's notable um, in comparison to other interpretations. Yeah, I think that it's it feels you know very grand, very lush. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that might do to doubling of certain instruments, which you mentioned earlier, Darren, but. Sometimes um, conductors will decide to double certain parts of the orchestra to like really emphasize them. Um, and I think for me, like the 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 thing that stands out most when I'm listening to this is the second movement, which has like these very like beautiful kind of romantic in the sense of like ro- you know romance sense, um, like you know strings in these soft mellow parts. Um, it's like just very lush and sort of like sensual. And, you know, you think about, you know, maybe it's useful just to start jumping back and forth, but you think about uh gardener's performance, which strips away a lot of that doubling and it becomes a lot less lush. It becomes more yeah. like precise and more like cutting Um the big parts. Like you mentioned, Darren, you know, they sound like a hammer compared to gardener who sounds more like a razor or something, right. you know? Um, there's just like a hugeness to this and, you know, to sort of start making that transition so we can jump back and forth. Um, the 20th century sees, you know, to give you the short version, like 
classical music becomes very, um, very big, very grand, very emphasized, you know, very influenced by this romanticism, which is like the music should be huge. The music should be like just so grand and so magnificent, you know? yeah. Yeah. And it starts to become like a little bit over the top. So you have somebody like John Elliott Gardner, who in the 80s and 90s starts to become a, a leading figure of you know what's called this historically informed uh performance or historically informed practices um they often make use of like you said darren period accurate instruments um you know because the instruments have sort of evolved and changed um to become louder to become like fuller sounding etc cetera, etc cetera, over the years um, but they try to get back to like what it would have sounded like in the 1800s they really focus in on like the research aspect and like respecting original intentions. So, um, you know, we'll get to this, but like there's a, a note to repeat a portion of the third movement here. And, um, there's some debate about it, but a lot of people just ignore it. They don't repeat like the well, whole, it's, first a, it's half like a really the- long repeat. Like it's and the, the recordings think by comparison, it's two minutes longer yeah um, gardner's version yeah so you, you yeah you notice that um Kleiber just cuts that part yeah whereas gardner wants to respect it because his whole mission is to like really get at the um you know the accuracy um they generally don't do this doubling business because it's just not how it would have sounded at the time um they believe that beethoven would have written for you know four violins if he wanted four instead of two um and this is the part that is so weird to me right so it's it's basically rebelling against the kind of stuffy traditionalists, which is ironic because <laughs> they're the traditionalists. You know, right. it's like right. like basically they're so traditional that it's got like sort of a punk rock element, and it's like hard to appreciate from the outside. But like this historically informed practices movement is extremely controversial when it first starts, and Beethoven, uh, Gardner's Beethoven is like this watershed moment that kind of like opens everybody's eyes to how rich the possibilities could actually be. Like, it's not just a novelty thing. It's actually like worth following. Dan, do you hear when you listen to these recordings back to back, you know, do you hear that difference? Like, do you hear that kind of spirit of like, you know, fuck the old guard when you're listening to Gardner? I mean, at first, like really, no, I, you know, like I, I even, I even took these and I, I did, I, I made another playlist where I did like the, the first movement and the, of, you know, Kleiber. And then I did the first one of this, you uh, know, listen to, to it twice, you know, but you know, one, one and one, whatever. Uh, Cause it really was like sort of difficult to like tell that, you know, obviously like the track links were different and I could tell, you know, like that one thing wasn't repeated. Uh, Gardner seems like faster sometimes. Yeah. Um, he's like going at like a white heat. I yeah. But it. I mean, like, honestly, I, I think if you just like, if you just played one and then played the other one for me and I didn't really know anything, I don't think I would super notice. I like really what I noticed the most is, uh, what Darren was talking about, like the, the miking and stuff. But, um, like yeah. I, I, yeah, I think like you hear that, like on Gardner, the timpani is just booming. Yeah. You know, it feels like so present, whereas it's like a little bit more in the mix on Clyber. Like, would you agree with that? Darren? Yeah. It was just cause everything else is so loud. Um, that the timpani yeah. kind of gets buried a bit on Kleiber's uh, interpretation. But I mean, yeah, just looking at, you know, I'm just looking at my playlist where I've got both of them next side by side and looking at the track or the the timing of each one, you know, 
every single movement between the two is at least between a minute to two minutes of difference, right? With obviously right. Kleiber right. being longer and, and Gardner being shorter. And I mean, that's that's a lot of time, I feel like. Yeah. And that, yeah. that just speaks to exactly how strict Gardner seems to be to exactly what the tempo is and sticking to that tempo. And But also, I think it's like, it, it's it's almost like a punk rock thing where yeah. it's like, you know, these pieces, I listen, you know, he's like sitting there, like I listen to Kleiber, I listen to like all these, you know, uh, legacy conductors from the past and it sounds so stiff. It sounds so boring. Like this music is supposed to be alive. It's supposed yes. to like give you a rush, you know, make well, your heart race. It's like bringing and, Beethoven back into the fold, you know, making it a little right. bit less about the, you know, personality of the conductor and their interpretation and about more about the art, artist's original intent. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, but also, I mean, that's like, that's totally a myth. You know what I mean? Because this is Gardner's, you know, who's to say that like Gardner is more accurate really than Beethoven. There are a lot of reasons we could talk about why, but it's like, you know, he's just trying to like shake it loose. You know what I'm saying, Dan? Like, he's like, if I really rip through this and like tear the roof off the motherfucker, <laughs> like people will realize how great Beethoven is again. It won't sound like stuffy background music. It's just so strange to me, you know, from the outside, like you would think that like his approach would be the one people would appreciate, you know, like, like say, say the white album was lost uh, and, you know, people would remade it like wouldn't everyone want the one that sounded the closest to the the the, the mm. real white album you know it, it, it's just so strange that like that like what he's doing well, is is that's controversial a really interesting question actually but also let's it, say like we let's say like we never had the white album right and you know you heard like somebody had this theory like oh you know the beatles were a rock band you know they like i've read historical documents that like girls like just screamed at the top of their lungs the whole time they were playing and people lost their minds you know mm -hmm. and like they they said they were bigger than jesus they were like really rebellious and so uh i have the score for this song long 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 and i'm <laughs> ripping through it as fast as possible you know what i mean like yeah that's I'm, true like, maybe there, yeah may, that's true maybe there would be information on the on the score that would say you're not supposed to play like too too fast but he's like i'm trying to bring urgency back to long 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 you know whereas some other guys like no long 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 needs to be like very mellow I, and very slow you know? yeah that, that that's actually a good point and the other thing i think of it too and, and we sort of talked about this on our like abbey road uh when we did the the remaster like is like Clyburn stuff is he sort of like you know remastering it for the modern times uh like like we said with like abbey road you know that like is it good that the that people are taking the Beatles work and, and, and changing things about it to, to, to mm. match the, you know, right. today, the contemporary listener. Um, so I, I guess at one aspect I can like sort of see the point in that. Um, but I don't know. It's just very strange that like doing it the way that, you know, <laughs> historically correct is, is the, um, is the punk version, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, it's very bizarre, but like, you know, you, one thing that I hear a lot, which I think is a good argument. I wonder what you think about it, Darren is like, you know, a lot of people talk about Beethoven symphonies. They feel like they're basically written like at the absolute limit of what was capable at the time. You know, like he's pushing so hard that, you know, it's sort of like a strange thing to say, but it's like if he had the instruments we have, the modern versions, he would have used them. You know, mm -hmm. if he had the capabilities we have, he was going for the big grand sound of Kleiber, let's say. And so why not you know he just couldn't because of his limitations yeah, why not give it to why him? why not like yeah why not take it there are you sympathetic to that at all darren absolutely i mean i really do think that that's totally a fair point to make you know what i mean um 
you know, you think about like Mahler in that uh, second symphony with like the, I think it's like the symphony of a thousand voices or whatever. He has like this massive, like, you know, choral and everything. You know, Beethoven could never even have imagined trying to do something like that because during his time, just in his time, you know, having a choral was like unheard of, right? He does it in his ninth symphony and it's like groundbreaking, right? So then uh-huh. Mahler, Mahler takes that, you know, in the, into the, the next century doing it bigger and, you know, right. that argument, I think he, he only does that because Beethoven did it, right? And he's expanding upon <clears throat> that what was originally laid out by Beethoven. So, you know, if you threw Beethoven up into Mahlersheim or even further along, like, of course he would, he would be using whatever was like available to him and probably even trying to push it beyond what was available at the time too. I I think that's totally fair to say now, you know, again, we'll get into, I think whose performance is better here, which one we prefer. All I'm saying is that like, I, I do understand the idea that like, Hey, like let's, Let's make it sound like what Beethoven would have sounded like had he written this in today's world, you know? Yeah. And I think like maybe that helps answer your question a little bit, Dan, which is like, you know, Kleiber would have been reading the score, right? And he's actually taking liberties, but the point of those liberties is to like, you know, capture the spirit, the true spirit of the piece, you know? He's like, if I double this, if I emphasize this, I'll get at the thing, you know, and, you know, so it's like, are you sympathetic to that, Dan? Like, it's not like, like respecting the score is not necessarily the best choice for the piece. Yeah. I mean, I like to, to to help myself, you know, like, like I I said with the remaster thing, you know, I I guess that makes sense. You know, if, if the Beatles had the, 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 the recording right. studio of of 2019 would the drums all be in one no channel? It, you know probably yeah not. exactly exactly so i i think there's something to that um but at least you know with 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 the beatles uh two of them are still alive who can who can put put the stamp of approval right, on it you know right. i mean beethoven's you know long long dead but um <laughs> <laughs> you know i i yeah i i mean i i guess there's something to that um yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 the, when you explain it like that, I think I think I do sort of uh, appreciate the 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 non traditional look, look at it or, or whatever. Then, yeah. Well, let's sort of get into what you mentioned, Darren. Like, which which of these we prefer? Um, part of the reason why we pick these two pieces one is because they represent these two different schools of thought, um, but also it's like kind of bizarre that you know, 1994. It's almost like this watershed moment for for Gardner because this Beethoven set like really kind of legitimizes the historically informed practices in a new way. Um, and it's now like kind of, it's just not even controversial anymore. It's like really just another thing that some people like, some people don't. Um, but you know, it's just, it's just like, not like the punk thing that it once was. Um, but also in 1995, Kleiber's fifth and his performance of Beethoven's seventh are grouped together on this CD, which is now for some reason, like the most famous, like classical single CD that exists for some reason, like Kleiber's fifth and seventh. Like, I don't, I don't know why maybe we could talk about it, but it's like between 1994 and 1995, I just suspect that there were a lot of people who were listening to these two interpretations side by side, you know, because they had, they were both just coming out 
And so it's not crazy to be thinking about them in, in, you know, comparison with each other. But on that note, um, Dan, did you find yourself gravitating toward one of these more than the other? I mean, I think if I prefer one or, one or the other, I, I like the Kleiber one more, but mostly just because mm. um, I think it's like it's, it's like a better recording, like like sound wise. Like I, I, I like oh. I, I really like like close miking, like like Darren was saying. So it, it's cool to hear like the chair squeak. It's you know like I, I like audio stuff. So like in that respect, like I I, I would pick that one. Uh, just. Also, that like that one sort of just sounds like, you know, my, my limited knowledge of of this, uh, you know, like I, you know, I've heard it. I maybe I couldn't tell you who who was the conductor, but this one just sort of sounds like the the one that like if I think about it in my head, uh, what it sounds like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it just I don't. Is this the one they use in movies and and all? Like I feel like probably <laughs> <laughs> it at least sounds oh. like the ones they do. <laughs> yeah. What do you prefer, Darren? Well, you know. <clears throat> Early on, uh, I would have I would have definitely said Kleiber. I was a big Kleiber mm-hmm. fan. I actually really loved this interpretation for a, a long, long time, and actually kind of scoffed at Gardner because I just felt like it wasn't as like muscular and bold and uh-huh. you know in your face. But uh, over the years, I've actually come to enjoy Gardner's interpretation like much more, like much, much more. Um, wow, I cannot believe this. Yeah, yeah. I now. I will say of his nine symphonies that he did, uh, Gardner. I really, it's the third and the fifth that I love probably the yeah, most. I'm yeah. not huge fans of of the other ones. His, you know, I, I like his interpretations of basically the first through the fifth. Everything after that, not so much. But um, but yeah, I, I you know, there's a lot of reasons why I feel like I, I gravitated towards this. Um, I love the idea, and it, this probably comes from the idea of just like getting more into like the history of Beethoven and stuff. And I feel like Gardner is just a little bit closer to what I feel like Beethoven would have sounded like. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. that just became more and more important to me. Um, and I, I like the quick tempo. You know, I think that that's sort of what when you think about Beethoven as the mad genius and the you know just yeah kind of who he was. I, I think that just seems closer to you know, what we understand Beethoven to have been. I mean, that's, that's all we can go off of. Um, Kleiber's interpretation has become much more of like, so much more romanticized to me. And although I do love the recording quality of it, um, like you were mentioning, uh-huh. Dan, I, I really love hearing, I, I especially feel like the cellos are really brought out incredibly yes. well on Kleiber. And I'm like a huge fan of the cello. So I'm like very yeah. attached to that. But, um, but overall it, it is just a little more drawn out, a little more dramatic um and that's just not something that i am as attached to anymore what you, what about you gabe yeah i'm a uh uh gardner fan for sure um but i i recognize that there's sort of limitations to his approach here um and i i agree with you that like some of the symphonies on this whole set they they just don't work because i think that gardner is really interested in this like kind of precision and this clarity and there are parts of Beethoven that are really like well served by the the lushness and the you know the the sensuousness. Um, I mentioned earlier like that second movement. Like I, I just feel like it's, it's just so interesting because on one hand, Kleiber he makes it like just so gorgeous those quiet parts, um, and I don't really get that at all from Gardner's. And yet there are parts you know. 
you know, like the kind of the second time, like I think I wrote down like three and a half minutes in that the like sort of soft part comes in, there are these like very fast tempo um, strings, like kind of gliding over the top of them. And Gardner hits those with like such precision and such clarity that it's really, it's like better because Kleiber, it becomes sort of like a mush, you know, where yeah. like the sensuousness is great, but then you lose kind of like the, like the rhythmic aspect of those soft parts. Um, you sacrifice some of the lushness in Gardner, but then you really get the precision of the, of the rhythm. And in this symphony in particular, I think like rhythm is almost like the most important part of the whole sure. thing. So that's For why, sure. that's why I feel like specifically his fifth, I just adore it. Um, and there are parts with that wild spirit you mentioned, like just shines through. And I feel like it really does get me closer to Beethoven in some way. Um, the, the ending of the fourth movement, it, it just sounds like it's coming off the hinges. Whereas right. I feel like in Kleiber, it feels very much like, you know, we lead into that amazing transition between the third and the fourth movement. And Kleiber is like saving some energy. I just can feel it. I don't know why, but like he's saving a little energy, a little oomph for the ending, you know, where it feels pulled back. When Gardner's fourth movement starts, I'm like, how is he going to keep this up the whole time? Like, because he's starting at 11. And right. then somehow he, he finishes on 12. You know, right. it's like, right. it, it just sounds so, so incredible, like just capturing a moment. And I also like that a lot where it's like, you know, that is a cool part of Kleiber, like you mentioned, Dan, that like you hear some of those like imperfections, those like, you know, the bows scratching and chairs squeaking or whatever. Um, but I feel like I get a lot of that from Gardner, which is like you're listening to a moment, like just a single performance and like the magic that happened in that room when like all, you know, shit hits the fan as that movement crescendos at the end of it. Um, and it's like it's not going to sound like that every night, but we got like this one recording of this really amazing moment. Um so to kind of shift into wrapping up, Dan, I'm curious, how would you say it went? Do you feel like you got into classical music in the past two weeks? Uh, I mean, it went OK. I, I, I didn't get into it. Um, I, I, I think that that time. So passed. we're not going to just do like all classical music from now on. No, de- <laughs> really yeah. hoping. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, like like I s- sort of said at the top, this isn't like my sort of thing, you know, in in music and art. I, I like stuff that's that's. That's the, 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 breaking the rules, you know. I, I like the punk. I like the the Dada. I like the. Like, it was once breaking the rules. Just yeah, two hundred years, years ago. ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like now, now it's not. You know, it, it, it's it's associated. You know, you think of classical music, you think of the you know the the stuffy white guy party or something. You know, and like uh, it, it's just it's just not it's just not my thing. I, I you know th- this was fine. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't hate listening to it. I didn't. I didn't dislike listening to it. It, it it's just just fine I, I i think one i think i might have gotten more into classical if we had done uh not the most famous thing ever you know this was like <laughs> this was like staring at the mona lisa for two weeks it's like what el- okay. you know what else can you can you say or, or learn about this you know incredibly famous uh thing uh, um but you know i i mean i didn't i didn't dislike it at all <laughs> So you're not not adding any of this to your banger playlist or anything? <laughs> no, no, I don't party. think I don't oh, think so. Oh, add though, do add the you know what's it called? A fifth of Beethoven from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Oh yeah, it's like yeah. that disco version of this. It's so of good. The first movie. Yeah, that oh is my a god, add it's that totally to the banger, banger playlist. <laughs> um, yeah, you know it's sort of a shame because it is true that like this was once the most revolutionary thing that anybody had ever heard. You know, and it's 
you know, you get these moments, I guess you have to be sort of in the classical music world, but you get these moments like a John Elliott Gardner, right? Or like a Glenn Gould with Bach or something oh, yeah. where it's like, it is like kind of a captures that revolutionary spirit where all of a sudden you're just like, oh, damn, I, I remember now that this was once, you know, just shook the the world, you know, and I can feel it again. Um, and I think that that's what a lot of um, conductors are after. And it's worth kind of like chasing that high because it does feel stuffy eventually. You know, I feel like the first time I listened to the Kleiber recordings, it, it blew my mind. But it's like now I associate it with the traditionalist, you know, kind of thing. And it just sounds a little duller than Gardner, which still sounds exciting to me. But um, but what what did you gain from this kind of deep dive into a symphony, you know, very well, Darren? Well, I mean, it was it was interesting trying to th- rethink like how I got into classical music because it, it really does feel like a, a genre that like once you kind of get into it, you get so embedded into it and you've listened to, you know, maybe like 10 or 15 different interpretations of the Fifth Symphony. You know, I've gone and I've seen like the Florida Orchestra, you know, like you, I've seen it in different ways. Um you know, it, it was interesting just trying to like drill down to just these two performances and really thinking about it again. Actually, it was it was pretty exciting and fun because it has kind of been a long time and I was really having a, a classical uh, itch. In fact, whilst going through these two weeks, I was I was going into other Beethoven pieces mm-hmm. just because I I couldn't help myself. But um, but no, and I I think that it was it was really interesting because I don't think I've ever. Uh, or at least it's been a long time since I've just really put two performances like head to head for a long time. Um, and probably before we started doing this, I probably would have thought that Kleiber and Gardner probably would have fell pretty close to each other for me, but uh-huh. coming away from it, uh, Gardner kind of stands like, you know, almost head and shoulders above in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just want to sort of like tack on some final thoughts about getting into classical music, you know, um, for me, it's like, I don't know if this is, I don't know. For me personally, it's just like allmusic.com is my favorite place to read classical reviews. Um, yeah. I think, you know, it, it's sort of like not the golden age of all music, but for some reason classical, they've they've always done a great job with. And they have this sort of advanced search feature where you can look at like the, the classical recordings that they've given five stars. Like, and, um, you know, I think that, it's just really rewarding to pick one piece like we mentioned at the top and just like check out lots of different recordings. I mean, I think you'll be amazed at like the differences you hear and you know, it's kind of like, again, the search for that high of like something this well known when it moves you once again, it's like just so, so incredible. Um, Dan, I, I feel like I know the answer, but do you think that like everybody should make this effort, and when I say everybody, I mean people who are into the kind of music we normally talk about on this podcast. Should those people make an effort to kind of check out, get into classical music? I mean, if you're listening to a, a podcast about music, you you probably like music a lot. So I, I think, like, I mean, at least personally, I I, I feel like it, it, it's worth learning about any sort of music that that has any kind of importance. Um, you know, there's there's always some some benefit of 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 knowledge gain uh but you know i i don't think like knowing beethoven's going to give you a, you know a, a deeper sense of of why you love the beatles or something but i think i think it's it's a, it's at least worth giving it a, a try you know yeah and i think that um pretty much anybody could find something 
they like because yeah. it's not all like Beethoven, Mozart, and Bach. You know, it's like there are a lot of different styles of twentieth century stuff that you said you kind of dig, Dan. You yeah, know, exactly. Like there's plenty of that to explore, um, and you can kind of go backwards from there and see what else sticks. Um, maybe we can just close on this, Darren. Let's say that one of our listeners um, really enjoyed following along with this experiment. They love the Fifth Symphony. They love Kleiber. They love Gardner. Um, where would this new classical music fan go next? I'm thinking composers, conductors, whatever. What would you recommend? Well, you know, <clears throat> personally, I'm you know a huge fan of Beethoven, so I would I would stick around with Beethoven, <laughs> and you really can't go wrong with exploring the nine symphonies obviously there are not all nine are at the same level in terms of importance or greatness uh we talked about the fifth but the third obviously is incredibly famous the ninth is one that you surely have heard if not you know almost as equally as famous as the fifth but one thing about the ninth that i think a lot of people don't know is like the other you know three movements of of that symphony generally everybody knows the ode to joy the right. dun, 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 dun. but that's that's actually in the fourth movement right so there's there's a lot to explore there um but you know it's also i think important to explore other uh forms of classical music right it's not always just a symphony it's not always just an orchestra right i mean there's just complete mm-hmm. just piano music right there's yeah the, there's the sonata form of like the violin sonata where you just have a violin and a piano or a cello sonata etc one of the most exciting forms that i really personally like is the concerto where if it's like a violin concerto or a piano concerto or a cello concerto you have like a soloist just a single person who is like standing in front of the orchestra sort of almost in like a like battling with the orchestra sometimes playing along with it but then going on these like virtuosic you know soloing and like it's really really fun because then now you're getting into not just like a conductor but you're also talking about the performer and their interpretation uh, of the piece of music so it's that that stuff really gets me excited that's, it's the guitar solo of the classical world <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> we'd have to we should we should cover some of that eventually maybe in the future all right, we'll do yeah in a, a few weeks. We'll do a concerto <laughs> theme. We'll do Jerry Garcia versus uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> somebody. All right. Well, what do you think? We'd love to read your thoughts on the air. You can email us popshieldpod at gmail dot com. Next episode, as always, not sure. <laughs> uh, if you like the show, help us out by subscribing. Leave us a five star review uh, wherever you get your podcast. Stay connected. Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff is at Pop Shield Pod, and we'll see you in two weeks. See ya. So long.